In today's episode, our guests Alejandra Ancheta and Joshua Castellano talk with Wolfgang Kalek about new strategies and ways forward and what a concrete human rights utopia might look like. Human rights in times of crises. ECCHR's talk series on resistance and concrete utopias. With our talks, we want to create the necessary platform for actors from all over the world to discuss and advance global human rights struggles. Human rights are a concrete utopia worth defending, but how to defend them needs to be constantly reinvented. As we find ourselves in a time of profound global transitions, human rights actors need to refer to prevailing inequalities and the underpinning social questions. We initiated an event series that is now available as a podcast to rethink the struggle for and around human rights. Hello, everybody. Um, our opening event today um, we're very happy to have two uh, guests, which are friends and colleagues. Um, the first is Alejandra Ancheta from Mexico. She is a multiple awarded human rights lawyer, the founder and uh, director of ProDesk, our partner organization. Uh, hello, Alejandra. Um, how are you today? Hi, Wolfgang. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you for maintaining the space of collaboration and also communication. I'm I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Alejandra. And um, hello, Joshua. And, and with Joshua, it's, you know, even more sad because he planned to come here. Uh, he drove 78 kilometers with his bicycle um, last week in London to get a visa. Uh, you would ask, why does he need a visa? He is a professor and long-standing uh, uh, dean of the University of Middlesex University, He's the acting uh, director of minority rights. He needs a visa because he still has an Indian passport. He got it, and then uh, new travel restrictions are in place right now. So um, welcome, Joshua. I hope to have you soon here, but meanwhile, we have to do it like this. Hello. Hey, Wolfgang. Hey, Alejandro. Uh, Real pleasure to be here with you uh, electronically. But looking forward to, I think, what is an exciting space they're opening up, Wolfgang. You know, we've heard so many things about everything that's broken, we need to start finding out how to fix it and working out our responsibility in it. Yeah, thank you both. Um, so the idea of this evening's event is uh, to have a discussion amongst the three of us and then after more or less an hour, um, we would like to invite all of you who are listening to participate in the chat and post your questions. Um, the, the code is Slido, and then I uh, have a number for you, 024066. I repeat, 024066. Uh, so you have to uh, put in this number, um, and then you can post your questions. My colleague Maria, who is next to me, uh, sits on the sofa and um, will then forward your questions to my cell phone. So if you see me uh, on my cell phone, it's not that I'm looking at the football results, which I'm obviously interested in, but this time it's only for learning about your questions. We have, we have been discussing uh, amongst ECCHR and also with the, with the two of you, what is the, the appropriate choreography for this event? 
Um, and obviously, there is a lot of place for dystopian features in these times. Uh, no questions about that. But um, at the same time, activists, artists, experts are breaking with the established um, model and are designing counter models for the future. People are taking the streets, such as the women's movement in Latin America, such as Black Lives Matters. People are taking the streets to demand their rights and the, those of others. And also human rights um, organizations have expanded during the last decades their repertoire to include legal actions, legal interventions. So that's promising. And this is why we try to start with a slightly optimistic vision. And we call it the concrete utopia of human rights. And the concrete utopia um, tries to catch the ambivalence, the contradiction between what Jacques Derrida calls the infinity of justice, a state of the world which we probably will never achieve, and the struggle in the here and now, the struggle for human rights in the here and now. Though concrete utopia means that we have a human rights program enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and in numerous conventions. But obviously, the state of the world is, is for many people, is, is a misery. Still, we as human rights organizations, as human rights lawyers, we have certain tools um, to work now and not to uh, get lost in an abstract utopia. So this is why we choose the idea of, the, of, of, of a concrete utopia. Um, but obviously, one cannot rule out the, um, the fact that we are in a period of profound transition and human rights organizations such as the three represented here and our networks cannot just go on with business as usual. And this is why I want to invite you to discuss a new program for the human rights, a decolonial program, a feminist program, an ecological problem, always um, along the social questions, and also um, a, a, a broadening of the program of contact, broadening historically, thematically, geographically, um, and also um, including new actors. We have to organize an interdisciplinary discussion, which isn't taking place. We are too much incarcerated in our own areas of work, where we are experts. Um, many of us are doing, um, those who are here, but also all those who are working in human rights are doing an incredible important work, but it's obviously not enough and not interlinked enough, um, not connected enough with other movements for human rights or for what you sometimes could phrase as a broader program of human rights, but which, what you could also phrase in another way, the fight against inequality, the fight for uh, a feminist approach towards the world, the fight against the climate crisis. You can use the category of human rights um, to, to at least catch some of the problems, um, but you can also use other categories, you can use other uh, perspectives, and that is something um, we as human rights lawyers, we as human rights organization uh, have to learn, have to communicate, have to discuss with others. That was not easy before um, the, the current pandemic crisis because we are all aware of the fact um, how unequal the world is, even in our small um, community. We are here at a much more privileged place with, with access to many more resources 
in the world is uh, obviously uh, a little bit safer than uh, here in back in Europe than in other parts, and, and we see this now. But obviously, uh, as 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 well, climate crisis as the, the the pandemic crisis show very well one cannot act within national boundaries to really challenge this state of the world. One has to develop a global approach. One has to develop what we call globalization from below, multilateralism from below. And this is not only the task of the states. We have to uh, think of a, of a relation uh, with the states, with the states' institutions, with uh, regional and inter international institutions, as well as a relation to social movements, which play an incredibly important role. As I said, Fridays for Futures, Black Lives Matters, and the feminist uh, movement in uh, Latin America, to name only some movements, who show very well how important it is to take the streets, uh, to be there in person with your corpses and express your demands. Um, but we have also to develop um, sustainable and uh, a continuity of political actions. And it is uh, quite difficult to uh, organize amongst this variety uh, of actors in such uh, different parts of the world uh, working on such uh, dif very different topics. So um, Cesar Garavito, whom we invite um, later on in this series, uh, talked of an ecosystem of actors. I would rather call it a sociotope or a social system, um, but it means um, that we have to accept uh, contradictions, ambivalences amongst us, different, uh, different positions, but um, we have no chance to um, overcome power. And this is something I strongly demand from the human rights movement. We have to be critical towards power. We have to be critical towards power without being dogmatic. Um, obviously, we, sometimes we need the courts, sometimes we call the courts, sometimes uh, we need the states, um, but sometimes we are in strong opposition to the states. And that is something uh, we need to discuss much more self-critical, much more self-reflexes than it has happened in the last decades. Uh, in fact, the human rights movement, or however you want to call it, all over the world, got bigger and bigger, um, especially in the Global South, something which is not uh, really considered by writers and theorists in London, New York, and in Berlin. It got uh, female, it got younger. So we have now lawyers and activists all over the world um, fighting uh, against injustice. And that needs somehow to be uh, framed in a, in a broader narrative without neglecting the differences amongst each other. So that is, that is something often discussed, but not often enough. And that is also something which is uh, too often discussed only when others invite us to have this discussion, mainly funders or um, mainly uh, bigger institutions. Um, but it has to be a, a, a self-organized discussion amongst us where we have to define new, in, a, in a new way um, our relation to other actors. So um, that is in a way the first couple of thoughts um, I have and uh, I want to share with you. And um, I know, Joshua, you were the one who reacted um, very quickly when I, when I sent you um, the first lines 
of my book, The Concrete Utopia of Human Rights, um, which is only published in, uh, in, in, in German so far. You reacted very quick and you had your own opinion to that. So I would like to invite you to, um, to speak now about this or about something else. Oh, thank you very much, Wolfgang. And it's a pleasure to be in this discussion with you and, and Alejandra. Uh, and uh, we need to hold you to one promise. That book needs to make it into English. I mean, that, that is really, really fundamentally important. Yeah, my, my immediate reaction on reading it, I think, was just to, to emphasize that part of the machinery that human rights has developed, which is the need to be critical, has essentially been turned on itself. And this idea that we can use critique of society to try to improve it is a valuable one. But when the critique becomes the main course and not the, not the, the apparatif, then there is a problem. And essentially what has happened is that by putting this, this notion of critical thinking into that space, and I mean, you started off by talking about Derrida, you know, again, somebody who talked about deconstruction and somebody who talked about the need to go back to the ideas and forensically examine them. But essentially our technique as, as human rights lawyers certainly was critical thinking. And that we owe really to the critiques of power that set up uh, the, the edifice of human rights. And I'm not just thinking about the edifice of human rights starting from 1948 and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I'm thinking about movements all over the world throughout history that have called for social justice, that have tried to embrace this fight that has always occurred between people who want to exploit for their own benefit and people who want to build for the benefit of all. And this has been a tension that has existed throughout history. You know, I was explaining to a friend of mine who used to live in London about uh, how, how London had changed. And I said, you know, remember when you used to come to London, we always knew there were rats in the tube, in, in, the, in the London transport system. We just didn't expect them to be driving the trains. And I think that is essentially a key here, that you've got to a, a system by which the, the tool, the basic tool of human rights, which is critical thinking and critique, use of critique, has essentially been turned, I think sometimes by ourselves as human rights lawyers on our, on our project because we felt it wasn't giving us justice quickly enough and it wasn't giving us the kind of justice we wanted. But that critique was then seized on by political forces who decided to just dismantle it as a system and dismiss it. And I mean, that's what you've got. So, you know, it's a bit like it was famously said, democracy is a terrible system except for every other. It's a bit like that, that you get to then to the time of a pandemic And instead of thinking about this through a human rights lens, you start thinking about it from a lens by which essentially how you can look after your own interests. And if that happens to be, if, that, if you happen to be a rich, powerful man in government, that means you're totally justified in doing whatever you want to, to just look after your own interests. And if you happen to be a migrant worker on the border somewhere who's sent home with no prospect of a future, uh, exposed to, to viruses, then so be it. And you just shrug your shoulders and say, well, that's life. And then you get to this, well, what you end up with that thinking is you get to a world where the powerful eat everybody else. And I think the really exciting thing about the book that you've, you've written, which I've only had the pleasure of reading the introduction to, uh, with some help from Google Translate and, and your own attempt to contextualize it, I think what it's trying to do is to set out this basic call, the underpinning call of human rights, which is the, the, the burning desire of activists, women and men all over the world in various states of privilege and poverty, essentially this quest to try and work for the common good and to build a society where your accident of birth will not decide 
who you are and what you can do. Thank you, Joshua. Alejandra, you want to immediately react to that? Yes, thank you, Joshua. And also, thank you, Wolfgang. I didn't react immediately to the chapter, but I did react when when I had time to finish reading the, the, the chapter, the final chapter, and I... I sent you very quickly a message, Wolfgang, telling you something like, besides of congratulating you for this achievement, also telling you that it was a, a very enjoyable reading for me. And taking in consideration what Joshua was also pointing out, some of the elements that I would like to underline from the, from the chapter and the discussion that we had Two years ago, probably three years ago, when we were thinking in, in how to reframe human rights as a, as a powerful tool no, in front of this environment that we were living before even the pandemic that was telling human rights are not any longer useful for achieving justice, social justice. And what we were thinking at the time, and your book also addressed was principally some of the, the elements that Joshua say. The human rights community had developed projects and have developed some strategies for making evident injustice around the world. But one of the, the links that we need to recover, and you say it in your book, is the link of how human rights are also useful for social movements. You were talking about feminism, this, the feminists around the world, but specifically the, the feminist movement in, in Latin America and in other countries from the Global South. You were also talking about the Black Lives Matter movement and their, their core demand of equality, achieving equality. And the other element that was very interesting for me and resonates with the work that we had been doing in Prudesk is the indigenous movement, not only in Latin America, but around the world. And how the indigenous movement had already an environmental agenda and how all these social movements are already from several years talking about what we need to change, but in some way, the elite of uh, the human rights movement ignore those social movements. And you are bringing this discussion about how to be self-aware about our own power, but also how to be aware of our utility as human rights lawyers and identifying that we are part of the strategy of those social movements. We are a tactic of the historical strategy that those social movements are developing, but we are not the center of the struggle. So that was, that was very, very interesting for me. And I think those points are core points for the discussion that we need to keep doing uh, among 
human rights defenders and human rights lawyers, but also with uh, social movements. The other thing that I would like to say is that you were, of course, as always, doing this very intellectual reflection about human rights and um, social movements and what is our role. But for the first time, I think so, and it is probably not true, but I will say it like that. I saw in your writing that you were also talking about feelings. And that was for me very refreshing, I have to say. You were saying that this is also about feelings, such as recognition, respect, and dignity, but also about powerlessness and frustration. And I think that is something that we need also to talk in our strategies, in the impact that impunity, lack of access to justice is having in our lives, but also in the relationships that we have with other human rights defenders and with social movements. And I think that is the, the call for this, this conversation. What is the new utopia for human rights? And some of the discussions or the, the reflections that we had together uh, also with Joshua was related to bringing again the political content to human rights framework. And as lawyers, we can't do that by ourselves. We have to be involved in social movements and we have also to, to learn again how to read the power you were describing that our reaction for several decades was reacting against injustice created by the governments or the states. But more than ever, we need to, to read the other powerful actor that is making deeper the social injustice, which is the, the economic power. And we have an opportunity working on mechanisms of corporate accountability. But that opportunity will last only if we can create long-term strategies along with communities and people that are directly affected. And you're pointing out that in, in, in your book, and I think those are some key guidelines for, for the further discussion. I will leave it there. Yeah, thank you both um, of you. Um, you, Alejandra, reminded us that we have been gathering already back in 2018-2019 uh, together with our friends from the Human Rights Law Network in India, uh, Colin Gonsalves and Kranti, uh, with the Center for Constitutional Rights in New York, um, with CELS in Argentina, with our Colombian friends, our South African and, and uh, Palestinian and Filipinian colleagues, which are all more or less in, 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 more, in the more abstract terms and having the same problems as, as we have. Um, and uh, we wanted to create something like a platform um, and even started to write a small manifesto. Um, but that was back in, uh, back in spring 2020 and the uh, manifesto was in a way um, overturned by the by the dynamics of, of of the time. Alejandra, thank you very much also for pointing pointing to the movements, and I want to uh, add some some short uh, remark to that because what I found so interesting about the feminist movement, Black Lives Matters, and the ecological movement 
Uh, and of course, the 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 the, the historical workers' movement uh, in in uh, back from the 19th century um, was that you know there was f no questions for this movement that there are ups and downs, that there are um, victories or yeah, small gains of, of territory, but then there are also defeats. That is part of a, of, of a political struggle. That is part of a political struggle which tries to reconcile theory and practice. Um, but it doesn't put the... Of course, it always needs a certain level of self-reflection and self-critique, but it never puts in question that it's necessary to stand up for workers' rights, to stand up for women's rights, to uh, fight against ec ecological uh, disaster. Um, so, in, and that's a big difference to the human rights movement. The human rights movement um, is, is questioning itself um, in a way which I found in, inappropriate. Um, and from my point of view, it has to do that we are too much dependent from funders um, and from, let's say, media attention. And to funders and to media, we are rather not presenting a differentiated um, view and analysis, uh, political, <laughs> sociological and economic analysis and connected with our work. Um, but we feel obliged to present um, our, um, our work as um, um, very successful, um, even though um, when we close the, 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 the annual report, the press release, um, we think slightly different. Um, and that is something uh, I think all of us uh, feel that, that has to be changed. And so in this regard, um, we not only have to learn from, 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 the, from the historical movements, but also, and that is something I would like to propose and I would like to hear your opinion, if we see ourselves embedded in this larger trajectory of, of historical movements for all rights, for all people in the world, if we see ourselves in this trajectory, and that is also some, uh, referring to you, Alejandra, we actually might feel a little bit better because um, then we don't consider the small you know, period in time we are active as the most important in this much larger history of struggles, but we feel connected to people who under much more difficult conditions fought for their and the rights of others and suffered much severe defeats than we are, we are facing right now. Um, and I, I think that at the same time, the spirit should be uh, uh, internalized by us and it should give us, um, on the one hand, the motivation uh, for the struggle and on the other hand, also the right to sit down at some point and say, oh, um, this, is, this is not enough and uh, we, have to we have to face that. So what I find interesting is, you know, I, I think there is no disagreement amongst us about, about this because we all expressed it in our terms. But what I, what I would like to know from both of you, um, and you can decide uh, who wants to start, is um, how, to, how to organize, first of all, a discussion between us, the loose network of human rights organization, and and all the other actors um, whom we named in this uh, in this last uh, thirty minutes, 
um, given, first of all, you know, even before this um, current crisis, but even now under these conditions, how do we connect, how do we communicate, uh, how can we overcome the differences, the different conditions? Joshua, you know, you first. Uh, it's a very good question, Wolfgang. I mean, and, and first of all, let me let me say also that, in a sense, the it's it's a fine balance we have, right? Because the in pointing out injustice is still fundamentally a part of our DNA. We still have to do that, and we have to do that, and that means that, you know, I mean, Alejandra's recent cases as well. You know, even yesterday, you are exposed in this role to the worst kind of desperation and human suffering that exists on the planet all the time. So on the one hand, you see that. And for every 100 instances that you see it, you can act possibly in 20. And in those 20 instances, you can really, really make a difference in probably five. So the odds are pretty terrible in that sense. So it's very difficult in that kind of setup to also then be thinking more positively about what needs to be done but I think that is the challenge that each of us individually has to take on, that we have to stop admiring the desert and stop, you know, uh, eulogizing and becoming even more and more articulate about the spread of the desert and how bad it is. And we have to start sowing the green seeds. We have to start connecting those dots and we have to start on those, those little edges and hope that it will take on. So your question really pertains to how do we do that? So first of all, locating ourselves in the way that Alejandra did when she spoke, in, in the middle of all of those kinds of movements is important for our own mental sanity and for, for the justification of our own project. We're not the first people to do this and we won't be the last people to do it. I would love to think, I mean, in your concrete utopia, I would love to arrive at the utopia where we are the last people to do it, where we don't have to worry about these kinds of issues anymore. But in that sense, that utopia, I think, is beyond reach. I think the struggle will always be there and there will always be the struggle against the human nature to dominate. Whether that domination comes from a particular gender or ethnic group or religion, it, there'll still be a human nature to dominate. And so as long as there's a human nature to dominate, there will always be a need for a struggle to make sure that domination is countered in some shape or form and that equality and inherent dignity and worth is spread. So locating ourselves in those movements is important, not for a self-congratulatory uh, session, but for validity and for validating our own tasks to ourselves and to the communities we work with, even though we might only reach five of the 100, 100 instances we see. But the next bit is really the crucial one, and that's what I like most about your book, the locating it to the current contemporary movements in other silos who don't necessarily use our human rights language, but who are, who are struggling for the same thing, the, struggling to, the struggle to reign in dominance. And that's where... I don't think we as human rights lawyers or the human rights movement has connected enough with the gender, the movement for gender equality. I don't think we've connected enough with those struggling for structural, structural changes to society. And we certainly have never connected enough to the ecological movement, and which is now becoming so much more prominent. So absolutely agree that that is the way in which we have to do it. We have to link on the how. We have to just accept the fact that this is a patient conversation that you almost have to win mind by mind. Because don't forget, in addition to these movements, we need to, we need to connect. And, and connecting to those movements might mean compromising on the language we use. We may not be calling it human rights. I don't mind. I don't mind what we call it. If it's a quest for social justice, 
Obviously, the human rights element is the specific value add we can bring to the equation. But the quest for social justice, we have to do in partnership with others, adopting and learning from them and using them and not leading them, not trying to lead anybody. This has to be a movement that comes together willingly without some great rallying call or behind a great leader, that, that old-fashioned model, I think it doesn't work anymore. So we have to do it in that way, and that means some compromise possibly on language. But the key element is we, have, we just have not to lose sight of the fact that our target audience is every single human being on the planet. And that's the one lesson that we got wrong very much. We turned human rights into some expert-driven legalese that the, the, the common woman or man in the street wouldn't understand. This was something technical. And then essentially it became so technical and, you know, we need the techn- we need those techniques. Law is also an art and it's an art and a science. You need to be able to have the know-how to be able to tackle it. But we need to be able to pause and translate our message and relate our message to the suffering that people individually feel. At the moment, the reason that human rights is not central to the current discussion is because the people who are facing that suffering have believed what has been told to them, which is human rights is not for you. That's just about, you know, in Britain, they say that's about giving prisoners and terrorists a a fair ride. It's not about trying to ensure that there's adequate health care for children or there's adequate uh, adequate educational opportunities for for migrant workers. That's, That's not for you. That's human rights stuff. That's what those lawyers do when they argue in court with those judges. And guess what? They're both incredibly privileged. And that critique is right up to a point. So I think making that that observation about our own movement and how we need to change the way in which we think about ourselves and locate it to the other movements we talked about, make an active attempt to reach out to the other movements, even if it means compromising on the language and terms we might use, would be the second element for me. And the third element is understanding what went wrong in the way in which human rights was kicked off its perch by essentially charlatans, let's face it. These were not people who had the well-being of every individual individual on, in, their, in their hearts and minds. These were people who wanted to seize power. And they saw the challenge that human rights presented as threatening them. So they decided to kick it and kick it hard. And they constructed a narrative. Of course, the, the story about the control on the media, the fake news, all part of it. They constructed a narrative to go to that ordinary person on the street and essentially take away the one tool that they might have had to be able to fight the injustice, and that was human rights. Thank you, Joshua. And I would like to to support some of the points that Joshua was was already doing. I think one of the challenges now for for human rights lawyers or for the human rights movement is finding again the use of value of our work. No, and that is a reflection that we have to to have with social movements. And the other element is, of course, what kind of leadership is needed now? Not only from the human rights movement, but also for other movements. Some of the exercises that we are doing in in Pradesk, and I think also other organizations from Latin America is try to build another way of leadership, another model of leadership. And we are trying to to build collective leadership for defending human rights. And that also implicates for human rights lawyers and for human rights organizations, organizations, the traditional ones, 
the more established ones to deal with power dynamics, which is something that we are always very scared to do and to even to bring to our discussions, you know, how the power dynamics are functioning in networks and in international efforts of solidarity or even in transnational collaborations in order to fight against uh, corporation or in order to fight for defending the land, territory, natural resources of indigenous people in Brazil, in Ecuador, in Mexico, and also in other parts, for example, in Africa in Asia, or in Asia. No? So uh, that is one of the challenges that we have to, to face. What is our use of value as, as lawyers? And I totally agree with the position of, of Joshua that that doesn't mean that now we are going to be organizers. We are lawyers. We need to be still rigoristic in our exercise of lawyers. But we also need to, to think what is the value of, of our work for achieving social justice. But the other the other challenge for me and um, that was that was an attempt of also respond to this conversation about the, the utopias of human rights, is thinking what are the other utopias for human rights, for human rights defenders, for human rights movements. And we were talking about social justice, but I think now social movements and other human rights defenders that are not the traditional, no, human rights defenders that are not the mainstream human rights defenders. We are talking about equality, but what means equality? What is the definition of equality that we want to build? Because social justice is not enough. If we don't understand equality in the perspective of people that had been historically excluded and subordinated. I was yesterday talking about this concept and feminist in Mexico and a, a Chicano feminist, uh, Cristina Rivera Garza, was doing a prologue, prologue I don't know what is the prologue. word in English. Prologue. Prologue, yeah, to this very interesting book written only for for women, Mexican women, which is Tsunami. That is the, the title of the book. And Cristina Rivera Garza talk about the reflections of all these women in the book. And she pointed out what means equality for women? What means equality for the different ways of being women in a capitalist system and also a patriarchal system? And she invited us to think what kind of equality we want to build as women, as a feminist. Because I'm going to say this in English, and I hope the translation works. I don't want to irrespect any, anybody in the audience. But she's asking, like, of course, we want equality, but we don't want to be equally fucked to other so other sectors of the, the, the population that are also asking for equality. So we need to define what is equality from 
the sectors that had been historically excluded. And for us as, as human rights lawyers, we need to be involved in those reflections and to reframe our strategies with those concepts. It's not any longer about what is saying the international human rights law only. We have to keep using all the tools that we already have. But we need to get compromise, as Joshua was saying, with other concepts that are not the concepts that we are used to, to do and to work and to argue in courts. But we need to, to, to find our use of value of yeah, this work. So the other, the other element that I, I would like to say is, the other part of the reflection that I would like to bring is, we, we have this permanent thinking related to what kind of justice we want to achieve. And we are also, we are always looking for the perfect justice, no? the more comprehensive justice. And Amartya Sen, already talk about this. He's, he's reflecting about what do we need to do? We, do we are expecting perfect justice for the construction of perfect institutions applying law? And that is not any longer useful. We need to build other perspective of an other idea of justice, thinking also that we are not going to achieve perfect justice, but we are able to build a less unjust world. And I think that gives us another task as human rights lawyers and human rights defenders. I will leave it there. I don't know if I... I no, I was just... no, no, it's, um, it's, a, it's, it's a perfect bridge, a perfect justice, perfect institutions, a perfect world justice system uh, is obviously uh, a goal which um, yeah, diplomats and politicians and probably lawyers of the world might aim for. But um, I guess we have a different understanding uh, of justice, which comes closer to Derrida's infinity um, of justice. And in this regard, um, I would like to turn back to Joshua and ask the both of you the question, are we really so, uh, uh, did we really fail, as you put it, uh, Joshua? Is the history of the last 25 years of the human rights movement, of human rights organization, um, not also in some regards a success story? Because um, in first of all, I would I would basically name three dates. One is since 1998, since the the Pinochet arrest, we are aware of our own abilities um, to even circumvene uh, the state's uh, um, passivities and the the unwillingness of states and of the international community uh, to put some of these most egregious criminals, such as Pinochet and his colleagues, um, on trial. And it was not only quite successful, but it was also inspiring in many regards. And also, um, in a way, and all our three organizations, um, I, I think, are examples for that, we were also able to overcome the traditional focus of the traditional human rights organization on political and civil rights, 
and marry the, the fight for political and, and civil rights with the fight for economical, social, and cultural rights. Um, and it's a relatively new development. I remember uh, 10 years ago, it was much more difficult to find allies in this struggle as, as now. I think, uh, Alejandra, um, you are, I mean, you, you have it in your name, and I think you can also perfectly describe how difficult it was at the beginning um, by funding this organization, founding and, fun and funding um, the organization. And the third date I want to give is actually, whereas law was traditionally, of course, law is still a very ambivalent tool, um, often used by the powerful elites, um, and lawyers all, you know, often stood side by side um, for the states and the and the economic elites. But my observation is that we, we have been able as networks of, of lawyers to democratize law. And, um, and I found it one of the most uh, thrilling experience when, when while traveling, I found it to find, to go to the most remote places and there you find uh, lawyers, groups of lawyers um, uh, struggling for whatever rights uh, are on stake right there. And I think these are three developments which are um, important to mention without ruling out your, your critique, Joshua. So how would you say, how would you describe, or can you, can you, uh, can you subscribe to this description of the, of the last 25 years? Absolutely. And thank you for giving me a chance to, to clarify. Let me, let me put it this way. Human rights have been a spectacular success. No qualifications. Human rights have been a spectacular success. It's in our expectations of what human rights can do that the failures start coming in. And it's, it's in the possibilities that human rights opens and the, the, the avenues that we could actually go through in holding power to account and dismantling structural discrimination that we see the failures. So as a process by which you can gain accountability, create a standard, um, provide victims' rights, develop economic, social, and cultural rights. I mean, your work, Wolfgang, at ECCHR is spectacular. Alejandra, your work in, in Mexico is spectacular. The work that Colin and HRLN do in India, is, these are spectacular successes that come against incredible odds. Um, the, the, if, if I can characterize it, these are essentially victories that are being won one by one, one victim at a time. And they are incredibly successful for those individuals who we managed to serve in that particular way. No question about it. The second big success I would point to is when you go back, and 1998 is a, is a key date for many, many other reasons as well. If you look at the extent to which human rights has become central to all legal systems and constitutions and statutes, that is a stunning That's a stunning success too. So no qualifications on that. I think the failure element that I'm talking about comes from the fact that we have... Uh, in a sense, human rights is one cog in the, in the wheel that tries to achieve social justice. And essentially, by using this cog and developing this cog, mainly through the notion of critique, what we did was we put a tool out there that could be taken out from the fight just against the powerful to be used by anybody against anybody. And what it did is actually it provided the powerful with the tool to be able to attack us with, because we too, in that spectacular success, became powerful as a consequence. 
And we became a political force as a consequence. That doesn't mean we are a political force allied to a given party, but we all profess social democratic views. We all believed in equality. And that, I guess, placed us in some kind of a spectrum, in some kind of a political spectrum. At least it clearly identified who we were not. Let's put it that way. Why it might not have identified who we exactly were in a political sense. And, and actually who we were not were people who were very much aligned with the commercial powerful interests. And that lead, led an opportunity. So, I, I mean, absolutely. I want to just emphasize, and I'm glad I got the, the opportunity to, to, to clarify that. Human rights have been a spectacular success. Human rights can also do a lot more. And it's that lot more that we have to do. And I think that's the point in history we are poised at now. So we get the success of the last 25 years. You get a massive backlash against it in the last five, five to seven years. And this really, we used to think about 2016, you know, a lot of, lots of things happen. As I, as I joke with my friends, 2016 was when I gave up the game of prediction because I got two predictions badly wrong in 2016, in the US election and in Brexit. And, and you know, again, because I had this, this belief in rationality and belief that when people reasonably sat down and assessed the facts, they would come to the only conclusion that was possible. And actually, they came to the exact opposite conclusion. Not that the conclusion I thought they would come to was necessarily the best for society, but it was just not comparable to the, to the alternative. And so in a sense, that's where we are at now, putting, injecting the human rights content back in, seeing and locating our role alongside other communities that struggle and finding a way to collect that mass will for a better future into something that will truly benefit all in that better future and not the sum who can, who can use number, numbers games turn democracy into a game of numbers and then mislead enough people and that's it you can seize control of a state and that's what we've seen now thank you joshua uh, for me it's it's very similar i think again is is for answering this question about if do we really failed i disagree i think we were able to have an impact and the you were remembering and Wolfgang about how difficult it was 10, 15 years ago to talk about economic, social, and cultural rights. How difficult it was to bring the attention about equality and what means equality for indigenous people and for defending their land, their territory, their, their natural resources. And not only about the responsibility of the governments, but also about the responsibility of corporations. 15 years after that, we are now talking about how to, to make um, accountable corporations, not only responsible for the actions, but also accountable for corporations. We are accompanying uh, this discussion, not only happening in Europe about the, this European law for um, uh, compulsory or obligatory due diligence in, in the supply chain, but also we are seeing how other countries are, are doing those processes. And it is also starting to happen in, in Mexico and Latin America, that discussion. 15 years ago, that was not possible. And that doesn't mean that we won all the cases. No, as you say in your book, it is also about, about frustration and it is also about losing cases. But losing cases don't necessarily means that we fail as movement to open to open some cracks in the system 
And that is the other thing that we are now questioning ourselves and listening social movements talking again about the, the economic model, questioning the capitalism and questioning the patriarchy. And that is also because the human rights movement were pushing with cases, fighting for the respect of economic, social, and cultural rights, fighting for the respect of equality, for access to equal rights to women. Um, and also, we are now talking about colonialism and how to think under percussions of the, the history of colonialism in our societies, but also in our legal systems. So the traditional perspective and the, the traditional analysis of why the human rights movement failed, which I don't agree, I already say, is saying that we are, we are using the law to create this imagine of, well, we win this case, it's a paradigmatic case, and we are showing that it's possible, but also because it's an exception, we are making stronger the system. That is part of the, the narrative of powerful people saying, well, human rights are even helping us to legitimize the system. And what we are seeing in the reality and what we are seeing in the advance of the narrative and the discussion of social movements is the contrary. They are using those cases, those specific cases to say, it is possible and we are going to fight for this. This is just one example of what we can achieve. And that is the success of human rights movement, the human rights movement. How people on the street are using part of our language to keep pushing and keep fighting against inequality and to questioning, now questioning. It is not about only the law. It is about the economic system. And that is, that is part of the work that we did for 20 or 30 years, pushing these concepts and saying it is doable, it is doable. Even with the, with the wage of the powerful narrative of corporations saying and other and some states saying economic, social, cultural rights are not rights, are only aspirations. And we'll see if we can achieve those social aspirations. And now we are talking about rights and we are talking about demanding these rights and, and people are being organized around this, this narrative. And I think that is the success. But again, is who is defining su success and who is defining failingness? No? And for me, we, we have an impact. We are successful, but we are not the only ones. And we are not the the face of the real change. Again, we are just a tool of people that have and had been doing that historically, as you also say in the beginning, the change, the real change. But we have a use in that. We have a role to play. And we need to be organized in, in play more efficiently 
that role for supporting all these people. Thank you, Alejandro. I would like to put some of the questions on the table who, uh, which were posted to us. And actually, you talked about one topic already. Um, so the question is, could the speakers talk about the concrete ways to bring human rights litigation and social movements together? So you anticipated this question somehow. Um, but I still would like to ask you, and but uh, first ask another question. Um, I still would like to ask you to explain a little bit more what you just laid out in, in more abstract or general terms. So how can we bring together human rights litigation and social movements? That would be the questions to you, Alexa, Alejandra. And the other question uh, was asked, are there any recent initiatives or projects being carrying out in linking human rights litigation and social movements? And I would like to first uh, um, ask Alejandra to, ask, uh, to answer the question, but uh, secondly, uh, ask you, um, Joshua, the very unfair question, you know, um, about um, the link between human rights organization and so social movements. Who should, should talk about whom, how, about what, with what purpose? I know this is very, very unfair, but um, I think, Alejandra, will you give a couple of minutes to think about an answer? Well, I, I will try to answer the question in the best way that I, uh, I, I can. Well, uh, we can see, for example, in, in the, the link between uh, litigation and social movements in the, the situation of the fight of Black Lives Matter. No, in the United States. I I know it's, it's something very general, but we don't have the time to go deeper to explain this. But for example, organizations and lawyers from the United States organize themselves to support the demands of groups created in, in this movement of Black Lives Matter. And there is a, a network that is called Lawyers for Black's Life Mother. That network was also created by uh, a young lawyer, not only her, but also with other lawyers. But she, she was one of the, the leaders of thinking how lawyers can support social movements. And the, this young lawyer is Purvisha, And she was working also with uh, uh, another young lawyer, Mina Jagangat. Mina is going to kill me because I probably mispronouncing his last name. And um, they create this very interesting network that were prepared to to go to the to the the judiciary system in each state to support and to bring out from the jail to black people that were demonstrating and, and also uh, demanding their rights on the streets, no? And that is just a, a very small example. Here in Mexico, and I think in America Latina, uh, have a, a more extended history of lawyers working with social movements. We, we have now uh, a very interesting space. We are participating in a very interesting space space convoked by cells in Argentina that is, is bringing lawyers from different organizations uh, in Latin America, from Brazil to Mexico, to think in what are the best strategies to support the defense of 
uh, human rights, specifically uh, linked to the demands of indigenous people, uh, farmers, workers, uh, the LGBTQ and plus um, movement, gender equality, and we are having meetings and we are deciding how to work together. And we are also challenging the economic elites in, in, in our countries. So that is another example here in Mexico. Uh, I can say, for example, the, the all the work that PRODESC and other organizations are doing in defending the land, territory, natural resources of indigenous communities against the, gov the government and against transnational corporation. It is, is one example of how working with web community is, is having implications at the national level because other communities now are also seen as a possibility to preserve uh, their, their territory and their land. And they have their own movement. They are asking us for advice in their strategy, but they are the ones who are taking, doing the decision-making. And there is a, a very, very extent movement of lawyers working in, in, in this perspective. And I can say, for example, also, NAMATI is another network that is working around the world uh, trying to, to support social movements and working with not necessarily traditional lawyers, but also with this, this figure, figure that they have the paralegals, you no know, training paralegals, what we called in Mexico or in Prudesk, communitarian human rights defenders, they call them paralegals. And those paralegals are the ones who are also supporting legally communities and the social movements. And for example, right now, they are the ones who are working together with people in Myanmar, no? And I mean, the thing is, examples are there, but the mainstream human rights movement and the mainstream media and the mainstream people are not paying attention to that. And this is the moment to pay attention. Things are happening, not now, for several years. Thank you very let's, much, Alejandro. Let's pay attention. I, I completely, I'm sorry. No, I completely agree with you. And uh, I also liked your point about the, um, to point to Argentina, because uh, Argentina is in fact an example um, where many different uh, movements uh, go together. And you can see that uh, part of the pandemic times, everybody is going on the streets on the 24th of March, the anniversary um, of the military dictatorships. And the Madres de Plaza de Mayo, one of the most important historical human rights movements, uh, turns to the young women and says, we are all feminists. Um, that is something that shows how um, social movements and human rights organizations can be reconciled. And um, when I asked uh, um, an Argentinian friend of mine, she was saying, this is probably the characteristic of a country um, which has effect been affected by gross human rights violation in the in the near past, and so we 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 kind of uh, are aware of the of the value of um, of being united and uh, and not uh, not seeing the differences, but not seeing them as as contra exclusive silos, as you as you said it. Um, sorry, Joshua, you wanted to say something again. 
No, I, I completely agree with, with Alejandra's analysis 100%. And, and you know, I, let me just put the, the two names that she struggled, she stumbled over since they are my, they are from the same part of the world that I, Meena Jagannath and Purvisha have done an excellent job, I think, in terms of Movement Lab and linking that. And it's a very good example. But Volkan, you know, your, your Argentinian example is, is holds true. I would say the human rights law network's approach holds holds that true. I would, in fact, say when Alejandra says that mainstream human rights, I think that is essentially Western human rights. It, and the rest of the world, these are movement-based responses. Human rights has come about as a response to a specific problem of entrenched need that's not being met by the state. It's not come about as an attempt to hold people who are who are guilty for crimes against humanity. It's, it's different. The, the Western tradition of human rights growing out of the need to punish the perpetrators of crime is quite different. And it's, it's, as, it's as laudable and justifiable, but it's quite different to the tradition in many other places in, in parts of Africa that we work in as Minority Rights Group International, for instance, where human rights are resulting as, a, as the ultimate, as something of a culmination of a need from a movement that's asking for help to interlocutors to try and get their needs met. So, so in a sense, if one of your tests, and you're, you're kind of complicated and curved ball question to me about the what and the how, you know, essentially I would say it's already happening. It has been happening for a long time. It's not a con- concrete, ut- that element of the concrete utopia is not one that we have to strive for in many places. Those links are automatic. You know, the Chipko movement and the founder, the, the, the originator, uh, in India died very recently. I mean, that green movement in India is, goes back and it used human rights as a tool to hold power to account. The movement for right to food used, was, a, was a people's movement that then culminated in the taking of a case and the winning of a case by our Colin Gonzalez and the Human Rights Law Network. So these links are very, very deep. And I think that in many places, the links between the human rights activist and the other activists is paper thin and doesn't often exist that these are just activists. Some of them work in the human rights world. Some of them work in as, 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 um, as social workers. Others work in service provision. But that, that distinction is quite thin. The difference is that the human rights people are the ones who decide that they should go to court to fight, to win that particular element of social justice. So in a sense, I think listening, to answer your question about the how, listening and viewing those movements and getting away from thinking about human rights as a limited tool to hold power to account for crimes against humanity and those, that's still important. But going beyond it, and you in ECCHR have done that constantly. I mean, you know, your two notable cases this year, one is on crimes against humanity and the other with Alejandra is on holding corporates, corporations to account. So you, you do that. It's happening already. I think what we have to perhaps do is to be more humble in listening to the movements around us and making sure that the movements around us, especially in the Western world, understand that there is a value add that human rights can bring to it. I think that's the key. And for that, we have to approach them. We have to make those overtures, but we have to also do so in a manner where we are willing to serve those kinds of causes and not willing to set the agenda. Thank you, um, Joshua. I have, um, actually, I'm, I'm trying to mix now two questions. And so the one question is whether and how the, the pandemic changed the human rights movement um, and the second question is, could Alejandra and the others speak more about her invitation to put more feelings into human rights strategies? What would this look like and what transformational power can it carry? 
And so the reason, obviously, why I, why I mixed this question, because I think it's uh, to start to answer the question, and that is something Alejandra referred in her first contribution uh, to, to, to something I wrote, is uh, I found it incredibly difficult to think alone, to write alone, and, and to work alone. And I think um, that is something which came more to light in, in, during, in these pandemic times. And obviously the fact that we have to lead this conversation uh, this way is incredibly harmful to, our, to everything we are planting and, and we have to develop. But I want to aggregate even one more question from my point of view to two things um, you were saying. So please keep in mind, how did the pandemic change the, the movement? How did it change our feelings, our state of mind? Um, but let me add a little bit more, um, because you, Joshua, said at some point, and uh, I agree to you, we have to do a lot more. What does that mean for us as persons? I mean, we are already all working uh, at the edge in, in normal times, and especially now in pandemic times where the, the joyful part of the, uh, of the whole uh, work is completely lacking. So how should we deal with this demand to do more? And the other thing is um, connected to something you were saying, uh, Alejandra. Um, on one hand, you, you demand that we work more in collective. And on the other hand, um, I find it sometimes very difficult to speak about feelings because the feelings are my personal feelings. And to even, you know, use the word I in such a conversation is sometimes outruled which I understand, I understand of the, um, I understand the, the, the rationale behind it, but I think it, it also hinders us from talking about feelings. When we talk, rather like to talk about a very vague we, we uh, rather than talking about ourselves and putting, putting uh, our, our feelings on the table. So I don't know who wants to, who wants to um, start. Alejandra? No. <laughs> Joshua, go Joshua. I, I, I went. Told. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so how did the pandemic change? I think, in a sense, you know, Alejandra mentioned uh, these two incredible women, Mina and Purvi. You know, that, I, I, I'd start with that example, for instance. They have been. Um, wait, wait a second, down. wait a second, Joshua. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm now interrupting you because um, Mina just uh, intervened. And so ah, I think, say, so you, you, could, uh, you, can, you can directly respond to her. So she's asking, do you think human rights ex is expensive enough um, to meet the demands of social movement? Uh, I agree that human rights hasn't failed, but I don't know it's, if it's enough. How do we expand the discourse to support the transformation of political and economic systems demanded by feminists, black, indigenous, LGBT, LGBTQ+, um, etc. movements. Fantastic. One, hi, Mina. Great to have you on the call. I, was, I think your example at the moment where you're trying to reach across to the health community and the, the, you know, to try and understand the dimensions of vaccine delivery globally, you know, that's a classic um, example in relation to the question we were asked about how the pandemic has changed things, where you literally see groups of people reaching out across their silos to try and engage. Is it, is it important? Is it, is it expansive enough? I don't know the answer to that question. I think it has segments. I think we all are sitting down, in, even on this call, with, with bits of the answer. 
I think the key is going to be to have and to foster a platform by which we can bring all those bits together in such a way that the sum of the parts is much greater than the whole. I think that's going to be a big challenge. And, you know, in a sense, the, the pre-pandemic world, if we, can, if we can refer to it as that, was characterized by uh, civil society movements like ours who were essentially in a race against each other for limited funds. And so in a sense, we never ever had a possibility or we, we never perhaps fully grasped the possibility of, of collaborating. And one of the things that attracted me so much to, to ECCHR and to working with Wolfgang was that he was very, very different in his approach with that, that there was this constant attempt to reach out and to build movements and to try and find out and to listen. And I think that was key. And I found that to be very, very powerful as an idea. And, you know, you can see evidence of it here now. You know, you've got a, a, a random conversation midweek and you've got some very incredible people who, who join because that is an energy in and of itself. Where will it go and, and how we will mobilize it? We don't know. And in a sense, this is one of the, this is one of the, the, the beauties of that ride that I don't think it has a, a leader and a vision necessarily in the same sense. We all have a common goal. And that goal is to make sure that every single individual on this planet, whatever their status might be, whatever their abilities might be, and wherever they might be, essentially, we will create a system by which we will maintain the importance of the inherent dignity and worth of that individual. And that's a common idea. How we get there will differ very significantly in Mexico, in New York, in Berlin, in London, in New Delhi, in Taipei. It will really, really vary. And I think that that, in a sense, is a... Is a is a driving force. Uh, on the subject of, of, of feelings, I mean, and again, I think Wolfgang, I was quite touched as well reading the, the chapter. And I, I think you need to know you're never alone. Yeah, you, you know, you've always got us with you on that particular journey, even though it might mean speaking through a, 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 a screen like this one. But essentially, in a sense, harnessing that power is important. And the feelings element for me is the fact that the, the biggest stories and the most stirring stories that I find, and I started off, life as a journalist. So I was very much interested in the stories. The biggest stories are how individuals overcome the tremendous odds that they face to make it. There's an inspiration to that. All our most inspirational stories come from that, come from struggle and come from winning that particular struggle. But somehow in the world of human rights, when we work at it, we take that element out because as lawyers, we want to be seen as being objective and not subjective. And I think, in a sense, you, and again, uh, Wolfgang, you in particular at ECCHR, have, have really embraced this notion of working with artists. And you've really taken it very seriously because actually, almost at their heart, the artists and the writers, and almost at their heart, they are driven by the similar kind of seed of this intense burning for social justice. So I think that is one of those elements that we can maybe try and tap into more. I hope I answered the questions. Alejandra? Yes, well, I think it is it is necessary to reorganize the way that we are thinking again, our participation. And I I believe that it is it is not sustainable to think in an unidimensional perspective of who we are and how we develop our work. For us, it's been a learning process in Podesk to identify that we have to, to work and to think and to apply our strategies in an individual capacity, also in a collective capacity, and at the same time in a communitarian capacity. 
And I have to say, it is not easy and it's not a quick process. And it is always a tension between how efficient lawyers have to be and if we really want to make an impact. And it is complex, but for us, it's, it's, it's working and it's, it's working very well. And in that way, also, uh, the question about how integrate feelings to our human rights strategies. And again, it's listening, as Joshua was was saying in, before, listening and with humility, other people. And for example, feminists, the feminists, we are for decades talking about how important is, is the private mother and how we we have this phrase about the, the personal is political and the political is personal. And that means subjectivity. And that means feelings. And we have to create this narrative, this, this very theoretical and complex narrative in order to enter to this patriarchal analysis of why feelings matters, no? And why subjectivity matters and why it is important to listen and to understand our feelings and the feelings of other people to have a very effective strategy on defending human rights. The other element is also, for example, uh, working with indigenous community, understanding their spirituality and how they are exercising their spirituality and how their spirituality is also a tool for them, not only to resist, but also to fight. And that is also an element to integrate to our strategies for defending human rights. The other element, which is uh, very important, historic memory. One of the, the lessons that we have in America Latina from Argentina, Brazil, Ecuador, um, Uruguay, is with the, the Madres de Plaza de Mayo and all these, these movements during the 70s was... And even for the case that, that Wolkan was involved several years ago related to, to Pinochet and the cases in Argentina. Memory matters and memory for social movements of disappeared people and their families is about love. It's about remembering what happened. And that is a very powerful tool to integrate our human rights strategies. And it's still happening. It's happening in Mexico. The crisis of people disappearing in the hands of the government, but also in the hands of the organized crime is, is overwhelming. And who are the ones who are fighting for finding their sons and their daughters are the mothers and the fathers. They are organized and they are remembering and they are demanding and they are the, the the main demand is we want our sons and our daughters alive uh, because we love them and nothing is more powerful in a legal strategy that understanding that individual message the collective message message and the impact in the community of those feelings 
Yeah, thank you very much to, to both of you, Alejandra and Joshua. We have to come to a certain end because um, we are going to uh, put this video on, on the website so everybody can share it. Um, and also we want to cut a podcast um, with the most thoughtful contributions of this, of this uh, Berlin evening. I would also like to thank the translator um, into German, the technicians, the crew of technicians which, uh, who sit in, in front of me, whom you can see, and um, my own team of uh, ECCHR who sits on the sofa right to me. I would also like to thank to those who participated in the chat and um, to uh, let's quickly answer like three questions. One was, why are you sitting there? Um, um, the three of you, it's a fair question. And I know that uh, from, from, from the registrations that many more have contributed much more to this conversation. And I promise you the moment will come when all of you and all of us sit in one room And there will be definitely more and a more comfortable space to chat. And also, these are questions which deserve to be carried out in a coffee place or at a bar. Um, then we would, I would say, we could grab deeper. Um, we have two more questions. What we do about um, those who don't feel affected by your work. Um, I think that is something we have to think about. And there is another question. What do you do about those who cause inequalities in order to broaden the scope of your work? Um, I would say this is a question I will pose to my colleague Miriam Sagemas, who is um, uh, moderating the next session next week, June 2nd, at the same time. And she's going to talk uh, with Katharina Pistor about her book, The Code of Capital, And it touches upon some of the issues we have been talking about today, the ambivalence of law and how important it is still, on one hand, to understand the restrictions of the law and the, and the fatal role of lawyers in the construction of this misery we are facing, but on the other hand, also um, the, the possibilities for lawyer to revert this process. So this is going to happen uh, exactly in one week. And so um, thanks to everybody and Have a nice day, have a nice evening and hope to see you soon in the screen or better in person. Thank you.